talk to you with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. On May 2nd and 3rd, FlatMap Oslo is taking place in Oslo, Norway. FlatMap Oslo is a conference about functional programming, mainly on the JVM. Please visit 2016.flatmap.no to find out more and to register, and make sure to use the code GEEKERY when registering for 10% off. And on May 4th, the day after FlatMap Oslo, the Type Level Summit is taking place. Type Level is an umbrella project for a number of prominent Scala libraries which emphasize pure, typeful, functional programming in Scala with an emphasis on outreach and promoting a friendly, safe community of collaborators and contributors. Visit typelevel.org slash event slash 2016-05-summit-oslo to find out more. Polyconf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available and to sign up for newsletter updates. Curion is taking place July 18th to 19th in Rome. Curion is a rare event where academic minds responsible for concepts and tools now invaluable to everyday software development, like functional programming or generics in Java, collide with the movers and shakers in the industry that are building the next generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curryon.org to find out more and register. And don't forget that your ticket is also good for the ECOOP conference as well. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 19th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The call for papers is open with 16 speaker slots. Talks are 40 minutes long, including Q&A. You have until May 14th to submit a talk, and Full Stack is issuing a call to action to attract potential speakers to join them on stage and inspire technology peers. They've said no excuses. Accommodation and travel expenses are on them. You can check out 2016.fullstackfest.com slash call-4-papers to find out more and submit your paper too. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor. And this week with us, we have Francisco Cesarini and Steve Vinoski. We'll start with you, Steve. Why don't you give everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me on the show. I started in the industry uh, around 1984, working on some hardware stuff. I found that I got stuck having to write some tests for the hardware, so I uh, found that I actually like software. So over time, migrated more towards software. And I worked on some middleware stuff through the 90s, enterprise middleware and integration. And in mid-2000s, was looking for ways to more effectively write middleware. And that's how I found Erlang about 2006 and started looking at it. And I'd ask myself, I wonder if it can do this. And I'd find, oh, yeah, it could do that. And, you know, every question I asked about it in my head, it could do. So I started using it professionally in 2007. And the job I have now, I don't actually use Erlang. It's not that uh, it might never happen. It could happen. But I still work on it in my spare time. I'm still working on uh, a VM feature called the Dirty Schedulers, hoping to get that into Erlang 19 as a full-fledged feature. And Francesco, do you want to give everyone a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, I'm Francesco. Uh, when Steve got into industry, I was still in high school drinking beer in Rome, but started studying computer science in 91 and got into Erlang in 1994 as part of my degree had an internship at the computer science lab with the inventors of Erlang and have never looked back. You know, I've since you know, founded Erlang Solutions, I've written a few books on the subject, spoken at conferences and actually started a few conferences as well. And I'm loving what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. You know, very much of the opinion that there's the right tool for the job. It's not always Erlang, but it definitely is for the types of problem we solve you know, on a day-to-day basis at Erlang Solutions. So Francisco, what kind of introduced you to Erlang. You got into the lab early, but I know you said in college, I've heard you talk about having to write programs and the same program in multiple languages with like your Fox and Rabbits program. But what was that experience that latched you on to Erlang? So I was taking the parallel programming course. I think concurrency was still an abstract idea. I don't think there were any languages which implemented concurrency. 
but we were taking the parallel programming course and the teacher came in, you waved the Erlang book and said, this is the book, read it. It was the very first edition of uh, distributed programming with Erlang. Erlang wasn't available as open source at the time, but Ericsson had released uh, licenses to universities, which were using it to teach. And then he said, yeah, these are the exercises, do them. And off he went, you know, and started talking about the horrors of parallel programming, you know, uh, shared memory, mutexes, deadlocks, and so on. And the exercises consisted of a simulated world where we had carrot patches and then we had rabbits eating the carrots and then we had wolves eating the rabbits. And each carrot was a process, each wolf was a process. And it was really fun to write. Uh, they had to display intelligence, they had to communicate with each other. And I designed it, you know, every wolf, every carrot patch and every rabbit was an airline process. And remember going in and typing PS minus CF and seeing that there was only one thread running, which was that of the jam, Joe's abstract machine, the prevailing VM at the time. And yeah, I didn't think that much about it. It took me about 40 hours to solve. Had a graphical front end in TCLTK, Tickle TK. And about six months later, in the object-oriented programming course, we had to write the exact same exercise using AFOL. And despite me pairing up with a friend you know, to do this exercise, despite me having solved it once already, it ended up taking us 60 hours, so three times longer to complete the same assignment as it had done previously with Erlang. And at that point, you know, that's where you know, kind of the apple fell. And it was just like, aha, there's the right tool for the job. And it's not always one language or the other. And that's what basically got me to uh, prompt me to pick up the phone and you know, call Joe Armstrong and apply for an internship at the computer science lab. And never look back, apparently. Never look back. Nope. <laughs> I've been doing Erlang ever since. <laughs> that's right. So, Steve, you came from the hardware background, moved to software, and then you said you'd started doing middleware research with, and then stumbled across Erling. So I'm assuming something like C, and what was that drastic difference between your languages that you were doing first off with interacting with hardware, moving to pure software, and then what did that transition look like when you actually came across Erling and stumbled across it? Was that your first functional language? Was that just another functional language you experienced and then there was something else about Erling that attracted to you? What was that story like? Well, coming from hardware, when I first started having to learn software because I was told to write some test programs, I didn't know anyone who knew software. So back then, it was before the web, so I just grabbed a bunch of books and studied and taught myself some languages. So I didn't know that People found a language and stuck with it. I thought that you, like Francesco mentioned, you kind of use the right language for the job. So I learned a bunch of languages. And I remember doing some hardware work where I was using C++, and it was 1988, I think. And people were looking at me like, why are you using that weird language? No one's ever going to use C++. C is more than enough, that kind of thing. Um, but then, of course, C++ took off. So once I moved over into middleware, at first, it was largely C++, and we're trying to do distributed systems using distributed objects and all the Corba stuff, and, you know, I was uh, in the thick of that. You knew that was going to get mentioned, right, Francesco? <laughs> uh, you just gave me goosebumps. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, around the mid-90s, people started to realize they could do all this stuff in Java. And to me, it didn't really appeal to me because it was just the same as C++ for what I was doing. It was just a slightly different syntax, but it didn't offer anything I couldn't already do with C++. People always say, oh, it gives you memory management or garbage collection. And I, I honestly didn't really have problems man managing memory, so I, it just never appealed to me. So anyway, you know, middleware moved along with EJBs and all that kind of stuff. And then around 2000, started discovering REST and the whole web approach to distributed systems. And that really blew me away. And I started looking more in that direction. When I finally got to Erlang, what I was doing was the company I was working for had appointed me into like an innovation role. So I was supposed to look at innovative things for the company to do. And one of the things that I was focused on was just saving money. and how do you 
how could we develop the systems we develop in a less expensive way? Fewer people required to develop, fewer people required to maintain, fewer lines of code, more reliability, all that kind of stuff was what I was looking at when I found Erlang. The syntax didn't really bother me. I mean, it's just syntax. You, you learn it in a day and on you go. What I was much more interested in were the ideas. And what, like I said in the intro, when I, when I would look at Erlang and say, does it have this facility? You know, does it have the ability for me to name things across a cluster? Does it help me assemble clusters? Does it help me detect failure in clusters? Does it all kinds of lists of things that I had written and my colleagues and had written in C++ or Java? It just had everything and more. And that's when I just said, well, I have to use this language because it's just going to save me so much time and trouble. The company I was working for decided not to use it. So I left that company and went to a startup that uh, did want to use it. And we used it for video. Uh, we were doing a video delivery system. And I worked on the HTTP side of that. So I was using YAWS as a, the YAWS web server as a video delivery system on the hardware we were building. And just kept at it. You know, the more I learned about Erlang, the more I liked it. And got to meet people like Francesco and Joe and the OTP team. And, you know, it's just a, an amazing community, very smart, humble people. And, you know, the system just keeps getting better and better. And I try to contribute where I can. And both of you talking about Erlang and what attracted you to it sounds like a lot of the stories I hear from Erlang too, where it's not the language that attracts you to Erlang because from everything I've seen personally and then other people talk about it. It's a very simple language, at least syntactically speaking. There's not a lot to it. But where it gets powerful and interesting is the mindset shift that it causes you to experience in the rabbits and wolves example that you gave, Francisco. And then, as you said, Steve, the different way, different process model and thinking about how you distribute systems and thinking along those lines. So what specifically kind of latched you on to some of that stuff? And how do you feel when you work in it about the differences between the language and the mindset? So Erlang is actually three things, if you think of it. And the three things which when put together give you an incredibly powerful tool, but each one on their own is good, but it's not it's not as powerful. And, you know, first of all, you know, you've got Erlang, the language. And by the language, I mean, the, you know, the semantics of the language. I mean, uh, lightweight processes, no shared memory, um, asynchronous message passing, dedicated error channels or error links. So you know, the ability for error messages to propagate. Once again, asynchronously, you built in distribution. And the second part is Erlang Virtual Machine. So it's a virtual machine which is highly optimized for large-scale concurrency. It's got built-in distribution in it. It has a per-process garbage collector. And most important, it behaves in a predictable way under extreme load. So uh, even though you know, the VM is under extreme load, you, know, you won't see any degradation of throughput you know, as a result of the context switching. And then the third thing is the programming model. And by programming model, we usually say it's OTP. It's the whole abstraction layer which OTP provides. So it's looking at you know, process behaviors, how you group these process behaviors into uh, supervision trees, how you apply non-defensive programming to it in a let it crash approach. And then how you group supervision trees into applications and create systems out of it. Or, you know, to quote Richicki, you know, Erlang is the language of the system. It's the language you need, you know, to create systems. And I think what he's referring to here is actually OTP itself. And so each of these three things, you know, taken individually will not give you the same strength as you do. I mean, so you can take Akka and you can run it on the JVM, but if it's not running on Beam, you know, you can copy the libraries, but not the semantics. You're still running on the JVM. You'll still have a stop the world garbage collector. So yeah, it's incredible. You know they've done a fantastic job with Akka, but it's not the same thing. 
So it's all of these three things you know, put together. You, know, you can take Erlang on its own, but you know, without OTP, you start having a lot of the accidental difficulties, which you need to think about. So you know, race conditions, uh, deadlocks, and other things which you know, using OTP and you know, the Erlang way of doing things usually do not happen. As an example, you know, I've had one deadlock across processes in the 15 years I've been designing it with Erlang. And it's just to get, once again, it doesn't happen because of the way you do things and the way you structure things. And if you think of it, it's, and once you hear, I'd be quoting Joe Armstrong, you know, it's a, yeah, the Erlang mindset, it's a very natural way of thinking. You've got processes, processes don't share memory, and they communicate with each other asynchronously and they fail. So you know, these are kind of tenants around the world. You know, we've got people, people communicate with each other asynchronously, people don't share brains, and you know, people come and go, things fail. Design this in a programming language. And this programming model, it's not hard to learn, it's really easy. The language is really easy to learn. What is usually hard is actually unlearning what you've learned from previous programming languages. Stop thinking in terms of objects, stop thinking in terms of inheritance stop thinking in, in an imperative way. That's really what, you know, what makes a transition uh, hard. It's not learning to do it right. It's, you know, stop doing it wrong. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. And learning it, it also seemed one of the harder things as well is to stop learning your old behaviors is also to start learning in systems thinking and the complexity of the interactions. Because I know you, Steve, have given a couple talks on this and talking about things like the RPC talk you gave where you're talking about some of the intricacies there that is not the same and making it look transparent to a local call starts leading you into a false sense of security if you're not actually thinking about that. So that's one of the things that seems like is the other kind of chasm that you have to cross. Is that accurate, you would say? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's, I mean, you don't really want to get me going on RPC or anything, but it's kind of what Francesco alluded to, the systems thinking, the, the thinking about, I like to, to think of it in terms of how do I get this thing into production and, you know, how do I deploy it? How do I monitor it? What happens if something goes wrong? And, you know, it's interesting that the Erlang, you know, let it crash philosophy is kind of presented to you as an early thing. And that really jars you. You know, if you're not used to thinking that way, you're used to thinking like, oh, I've got to figure out all the stuff could possibly go wrong and try to mitigate it. And it's just an impossible task. So with Erlang, well, when you, say, you hey, when oh, you go ahead. When you mitigate it, sorry if I'm interrupting, when you mitigate it, you actually end up inserting even more bugs into the system. Right, right. So it just spirals <laughs> out of control. Yeah, so... And yet it's not like the flip side of let it crash is it's not that you're just ignoring your errors. You're actually doing a better job dealing with them because you can deal with them. It's just that you're taking a very different way of dealing with them than traditional systems do. And it's that kind of thing that I think, you know, becomes what we would call systems thinking. It's, it's really kind of rising, like Francesco said, rise way above the language and way above kind of, you know, using this library or whatever the hot library of the day is. You have to think about what are your requirements? How's the system going to be deployed, maintained, augmented? How's it going to evolve? How's it going to handle errors? And once you do that, it's like, you go back to what I was saying earlier, you look at Erlang and go, yep, they covered that. Yep, they got that. Yep, they addressed that. And it's just kind of all there. And the let it crash, I believe I've seen Robert and or Joe both talk about early design stuff where the let it crash isn't necessarily kill it and you don't care that it crashes. You still care that it crashes, but what you're doing is you're embracing the fact that the system is inherently going to fail. And then you can design with that instead of thinking, okay, everything's good, everything's smooth. Oh, wait, now we had a failure. Now I got to go retrofit that in. Is that accurate from both of your experiences as well? Yes, definitely. I gave a talk quite a number of years now ago where it was called Let It Crash Except When You Shouldn't. And the idea behind that was that you get this Let It Crash philosophy 
But that doesn't mean you just ignore the errors and just let everything crash and let it supervisor restart the process. Because the problem is like I used, I know one of the examples, just, just a TCP connection where if you're starting up, say, a gen server, you don't necessarily want to try to open a TCP connection in your init function because if init fails, then, you know, your bad things are going to happen. And TCP is such that it can easily fail. If you have a partition or some kind of misconfiguration in your network, you're going to get a failure. So that's the kind of thing that you have to think about that can easily fail. And you have to think about how to deal with that. You just don't kind of assume that it's going to work. And I think that's what Joe and Robert were getting at, that it forces you to think about failure cases across your system. You don't have to think about every single little detail, but you do have to classify them and know how to address them when they occur. And it's a learning thing. It's an ongoing learning thing as you run the system. And if your system is, if you're lucky enough to have a system that runs for years on end, you learn quite a bit from doing that. And what I like about the whole let it fail and handling errors in airline is that you do it in a homogeneous way. It doesn't matter if your request times out because you know, the receiving processor node is incredibly busy. It doesn't matter if the receiving node has crashed or if the machine which is running has crashed or if the network's down. You're handling your hardware, software, network errors in exactly the same way. So it makes error handling much, much easier to deal and think, you know, deal with and, and, and think and reason about. Yeah, it's basically not breaking it up and having individual tasks. And you know, that's something also which... After having used Erlang for a while, you, you come to realize it's not obvious at first. And, and this has to do with the asynchronous nature of the language. You might be receiving an, an exit signal from a local process, but from a remote process coming from another node, the, the only thing which will change is latency. It will take you a bit longer for that signal to reach you. But you go in and handle them in exactly the same way. And you know, that signal might be the result of a network error, hardware error, or any other source of failures you might not have envisioned when you designed your system. And this kind of gets down into the crux of why I wanted you on, was you both have a book that is due out soon, if not already out by the time this airs, called Designing for Scalability with Erlang and OTP. And it gets into thinking about these failure cases and building it up and understanding how some of these things work and giving you scalability and reliability. And when I got your book on early release and started it, I had read Erlang and OTP in action. And I got a good grasp of what seemed to be the fundamentals of the Erlang process model and what a gen server is and some of the behaviors and gen FSM and some of that stuff. But there was that leap and that was the chasm I was trying to cross was, but how do you structure some of the stuff? And actually, how do you design for some of this reliability, because I didn't actually understand all the failure cases that go in. And so your book talks about this and uses Erlang. So do you want to kind of give an overview of what you've learned and distilled down and what prompted you to find the need for this book, either for Erlang individually or at a general level? Because reading it, a lot of this is, again, designing for scalability, whether or not it's Erlang or OTP. But those are just the mechanisms that you use to show the examples. So, shall I start, Steve? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, um, so, after having written the first book, Erlang Programming, I've always wanted to write a follow-up book focusing on OTP. And so, the first, you know, the chapters dealing with you know, designing a node, uh, I think the correct title for the book, by the way, should be Designing for Scalability and Reliability with Erlang OTP, but unfortunately, there's only that many words you can fit in a book title. But, and so what we did, I mean, in the first nine, ten chapters, we focused on you know, designing a single node, making sure it could scale horizontally, that it would be reliable and full tolerant, and you know, that you'd be able to do upgrades on it. And more than, you know, I think it differentiates itself very much from the other books in that we explain why you need OTP. And by explaining why and its inner workings behind the scenes, you know, the readers learn how to use it. As I usually joke, you know, I usually call this, this is a book Jonas Bonner wished he had when he invented ACA. And 
anyone thinking and considering about writing their own OTP layer on top of any programming language, you know, I wanted it to become the reference guide for them. So as you say, it is not about Erlang, it's about abstracting failure mechanisms and using asynchronous programming models to ensure that your software scales. You have, Steve, anything to add to this? Well, I think once you get past the first 12 chapters, you know, you get into 13 to 16 and you get into distributed systems stuff that we talk about. And that it's pretty hard to write those chapters. There's quite a bit to distributed systems and you could easily write, you know, books and books about, in fact, people have written books and books about distributed systems and all the nuances and details and I like to think that chapters 13 to 16 have kind of a nice distilled form about distributed systems. Touches on a lot of the highlights. They can't necessarily be prescriptive, right? Like for every little detail of scalability that you might want to learn about, you're going to have to learn that just from the domain you're working in or from the problem you're working on. Those chapters can't answer every question, but they do provide the fundamentals and the things you need to think about when you're looking at the problems you're dealing with. I think when we started writing these chapters, you know, my first thought is, you know, why don't we have an all-purpose, distributed, full-tolerant framework on which we can build Erlang-based systems? That was my first question. And having finished writing, you know, when we finished writing these four chapters, you know, I had the answer. The answer is that every system differs so much in terms of scalability and reliability and all of the trade-offs you need to make as a result of your design decisions that, you know, it's, it's not possible to write a generic platform. If you do write your platforms, they would be very specific to particular use cases and, you know, the trade-offs, you know, would be made for you and they might not necessarily be the trade-offs you need. And... Steve, you mentioned that the later half of the book, 13 through 16, was talking about the distributed systems nature. But reading the first half, it felt like that was inherently a distributed systems nature as well because of the way the process model of the Erlang VM is set up and that you're communicating asynchronously through all of these things. And so whether or not they're actually distributed or not, they still seem to have that distributed systems model where any of these processes can fail and you've got all these failure cases around communication that you have to handle. So it seemed like you were actually even setting the groundwork about understanding the intricacies of just the common cases of distributed systems pretty early on in the book from both of you, right? Yes, I think that's true. And I think that's not so much, it's about distributed systems, but it's really comes down to fault tolerance. When you have a fault tolerant system, as Joe Armstrong is fond of saying, you need at least two computers. Usually we use more than two, but at least two is a good place to start. And so you end up with, you know, systems that really need reliability and fault tolerance end up being distributed because they have to be. And once you're in that position, then you have to look at the system as one that's going to be distributed and you're going to have to deal with these failure cases that are going to arise in that sort of system. So starting with that early on is just really part of the overall fault tolerance and reliability aspects that Erlang OTP always brings to the table. And one of the reasons I bring that up was early on in the, I think it was episode six was the number, but with Reed Draper, he talked about if you're actually writing a web application, you're inherently building a distributed system because you have a client and a server across a network. And so it's one of those things that this book seems like it's relevant for a web developer, no matter what language they're doing, or even a standard fat client server kind of concept where you're putting this, installing this program onto a system and it's got to communicate with this backend server that you've still got all these other constraints that you have to think about. Do you think that's a fair statement that this book is that broad of a applicability instead of just you're writing server side systems that are distributed and you got this database over here and you got the server over here and you got the load balancer over here? Yeah, like Francesco talked about the first part of the book kind of being the blueprint for these kinds of systems and the book that people like Jonas Bonero wishes he had. That carries directly into what you just said in the later chapters where 
you're looking at system architectures and trying to say, you know, what kind of patterns are used in these types of systems? And you don't want to really go off and try to invent all this stuff on your own because it's just so incredibly difficult. So you want to stand on the shoulders of those who bravely went before you. So you're able to kind of distill down some patterns that are commonly used and known to work. And the second part of the book, Francesco did quite a bit of work to describe a lot of those patterns and succinctly do that. So that's really hard to do. That, Like I said before, you could probably have an entire book probably on you know each of the patterns if you really got into it. But uh, being able to kind of distill it down and yet make it useful is the value of those later chapters. And like you said, it's not really about OTP at that point. It's about systems and could be any language, any type of system that you're looking at, distributed system. I think there's material there that people could learn from. Just you know, to follow up, I think we've got something like 40, 50 pages just on gen servers. And when writing these chapters, I developed our Erlang Solutions training material. You know, the first iteration was probably redone in 2001, 2002. And then the materials kept on evolving since then. So I took the examples from our training material. And all I did when I started writing was lecturing. And I just went in and you know, then I went back and thought, okay, where, you know, thinking of all of the classes I've taught you, where were people struggling? in understanding certain concepts, went back and rewrote those sections, made sure they were extremely clear. When that was done, you know, went in and thought, okay, what were the questions that really smart students asked, which, you know, is not part of the course material, but which are very relevant to the topic. They became side notes. And when that was done, okay, let's go in and have a look at the manual pages and make sure, you know, we've not missed anything. And I did that. And at that point, you know, when that was done, it was, you know, probably one to two months had been spent on that particular chapter. And, you know, before we knew it, the 10, 20 pages you might have dedicated to any behavior had turned into 40, 50 pages. And that's the point at which I threw it over to Steve Vinovsky. And, um, you know, you know, no, you got it right when Steve Inovsky goes, wow, you know, I've actually learned something from this chapter myself. <laughs> so yeah, th th this is the procedure we used. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember what, what you know, in re relation to what it was, Steve, but uh, yeah, you came up with that comment a few times and yeah, it made me smile. Yeah. There's some good uh, but, stuff in there for sure. Yeah. And then Steve went in and added all of his knowledge and all of his experience. Then, you know, threw it back, uh, you know, removed all the Corba jokes. I reread it, added the Corba <laughs> jokes again. And, you know, and, and we went backwards and forwards a few times and, uh, what I'd love to do is challenge people to, you know, to figure out who took the lead on what chapters, you know, because, you know, by the time we were done, you, you can't see it. Yeah. I think one of the cool parts, kind of relating to the remark Francesco made about this is the book certain people wish they had for building OTP-like systems. I like the parts kind of in the middle where they delve into how these behaviors work. You know, they just kind of tear them completely down. And start from first principles, you know, what if you need to do this? Well, then you're going to have to address this. And how do you address that? Well, then you go and you, you know, you end up with these event loops that listen for certain requests and you have certain types of messages coming in, system messages and, you know, user messages and how are those handled? And, and it's just this really nice, I think, very educational way of explaining all those internal details. And I found just for myself, you know, going back a few years, when I finally figured out how those things worked on my own, then it was like a whole world opened up to me. I understood a lot more about how to assemble them. And I think in the software industry, people always want to look for the easy answer. They want to find a library or a framework that handles all the hard stuff for them, and they just want to write some code on top of it. And, you know, magical things happen. And it just really doesn't work that way. You have to know what the system's doing if you're going to scale and you're going to be reliable. You kind of have to know what's going on inside. And once you realize how the OTP behaviors work, you're able to think about your system in a different way and think about, you know, the kind of problems that you really have to address and how OTP is going to help you do that. So I think there's quite a bit I, of that. There's often talk about 
let's say, the millennial not reading books and, you know, solving problems and looking for answers on Stack Overflow and online, um, if you start solving in complex problems, there is no shortcut. You need to read books. You need to, you know, you need to understand what the problem is and design and approach it properly. Google won't help you. Know, Google and copy and paste programming won't help you, you know, address them. It's... Uh, so, and one of the things that I really appreciated and helped click, as you were saying, Steve, and what you were outlining, Francisco, was all those different failure cases. And, well, what if I just send a message here? And then I expected to respond. Okay, well, what if I send these two messages and then they come back in different orders? And doing some enterprise development and just reading, I think it was Fowler's Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture, where they're talking about some of the messaging stuff, whether it's a message queue or... SOA web services or that kind of thing where it's like, okay, now you need a message ID and a correlation ID and some of these other things that help you know that this response is now tied to this, whether or not it's a HTTP request or WebSocket request or TCP thing or whatever, you still outline a lot of that stuff in there and like, how can this break? Oh, well, okay, you thought you were good, but here's another scenario where things start failing again because you didn't actually think of the intricacies at the super deep level because more than likely you haven't been bitten by them. So you don't necessarily know to look for them. Yeah. I think, so, uh, you know, people should look to the book like Francesco was, was talking about earlier, look to the book as certainly a resource for, learning a lot about the internals of OTP, learning a lot about the intricacies of distributed systems and just systems in general. But if they're really looking for cut and paste or looking for all the answers, well, we have news for you. <laughs> you won't find it in this book or any other book for that matter. And yeah, grouping it online through blog posts and Stack Overflow questions and answers is not the way, yeah. You need everything in one place, and yeah, there are no shortcuts when you're designing distributed systems. And one of these things I kind of missed early on in this conversation is we've mentioned scalability, reliability, redundancy, distribution, and all of that. So do you want to kind of – and I know you've – in previous conversations, so I've heard you talk about the different terms and how they relate to each other. So do you want to kind of give a – little bit of rundown here for anybody who hasn't heard about that relationship. So, Steve, do you want to go first? or Yeah, I can start off. It kind of ties back to what I said a little while ago, which is that for reliability, when you want a fault-tolerant system, you have to start thinking about redundancy, and you have to have multiples of things. You have to have multiple hosts, multiple nodes, multiple computers, sometimes multiple clusters. You have to have multiple networks, multiple power supplies. You know, if you're getting really into high, high reliability, you have to have a software that matches all that kind of hardware redundancy. So you need something to be able to manage the redundancy. You have to think about all the messages that have to flow between these components. And so that starts to get you into scalability and throughput and latency. And that gets you into failure modes. You know, how do you know that a node is down versus just really slow well you kind of don't and how do you deal with that and so you know a lot of these problems i think people think well you know we've hit a lot of these problems in the last couple of decades because the web came up and, and the web is you know super super scale but these problems have been around for decades and decades in the telecommunications industry and OTP reflects the fact that a lot of those lessons were learned the hard way in the decades gone by, and those lessons were part of what makes OTP OTP. They were brought in and, and made part of the system. So the fact that scalability means that you're able to have, as the system takes more and more load, you still have decent throughput and all this kind of stuff that's you know that goes back to telecom and that's reflected in otp error handling you know the fact that the system has to stay up you can't just throw an exception and print something to the user you know you actually have to keep running so how do you do those kinds of things 
that's why all this stuff is tied together. And Francesco, you could probably add to that. Absolutely. So when I started initially writing, I took the lead on this chapter. Uh, initially, you know, the section Steve was describing was one chapter, chapter 13, looking at node architectures. And about six, seven months into writing this chapter, chapter 13, it had you know, there was no training material around it. There was no index. We, we were just writing down our experiences. And, you know, about six months, seven months in, we'd basically realized, you know, we'd reached 80 pages and realized that it had to be broken up into sections. And we managed to distill down, you know, the things you need to think of in terms of, you know, first of all, availability. So defining the uptime of a system over a certain period of time. And based on availability, we, we distilled down that, you know, it's a result of the system having no single points of failure. So it's being full tolerant, resilient, and reliable. And full tolerance, you know, basically refers to the system acting predictably under failure. And that means you, know, you will need, as Steve was saying, you know, multiple computers, multiple networks, multiple power sources, um, and you know, as soon as you've got multiple computers, you need to start distributing your data. And that, in turn, adds complexity. You need to think in terms of resilience. So resilience meaning you know, the ability to system to recover from failure. If your system crashes when starting up again, you need to recreate a state which is hopefully pure, which is not corrupted. You need to think in terms of reliability. So, you know, the system to function under particular predefined conditions. And these predefined conditions include errors. What happens if you lose nodes which are handling your requests or even, you know, inconsistent data? And putting all of these design decisions which you make as a result, you end up having to decide how you share your data across nodes. You know, do you want to share something, share everything? Or do you want to shard? Um, and alongside your, your sharing strategy, you also want to go, go you know, and decide on your retry strategies. If you send a request and that request fails, do you care that it fails? So you know, do you fire and forget? And if it fails, well, you lose an instant message or you lose an SMS. Or do you want to continue retrying? So if you send a request and it fails, you want to try try resending on another machine. So you know this is what we usually refer to the as the at least once scenario strategy, and that might mean that you continue doing it until you're successful. That will you know, that guarantees that your SMS or your instant message has received you know, has reached its recipient, but that comes with the risk that it, yeah they might have received that message more than once. Because you, know, you might have sent it to a node which you believed was down because you got a timeout, but in fact it was extremely busy. And you know, a node under heavy load in your system is, is handled as the same way as, an, uh, as, a, as a dead node. And then further, you know, you've got exactly one's approach. And that means that you, know, you want to make sure that your recipient receives your message exactly once. And this is something which is really hard to program in distributed systems because you know that yeah, if, if nothing goes wrong, yeah, you, you'll, you'll get an acknowledgement that the, the message has been received. But if you send a request and something goes wrong in between, you get back an error. And at that point, you don't know if it has been received. And you know, the only way to find out is to go in and start querying the state of the system and, yeah, and, and figuring it out. So in this case, you know, if you're sending an SMS, you know, go in and query, query the SMSC, go in and query the mobile handset, which actually receives the SMS to check that it has been received once, you know, connectivity is back up. And taking all of these items, uh, you know, you end up ha having to make, you know, you end up making design choices, which, um, which result in trade-offs in, you know, both consistency, availability, reliability, and scalability. And I think, you know, that's what we've been able to distill down in, in uh, the last four chapters, which initially started as one single chapter. Yeah, and I remember seeing your Twitter updates about Chapter 13 as it progressed. And then all of a sudden it's like, and we've now got a whole bunch more stuff there. So we've just expanded into multiple chapters. Exactly. And I think you know, it was 80 pages when we broke it up. 
into four chapters, I think we ended up with about 120, 130 pages. So a good, you know, 25 to 30% of the book, you know, focuses on this, on scalability and reliability in distributed systems. So we've been going for a while and I've still got a little bit of buffer on the window. I want to make sure that I respect your time though, but I want to give you the chance both to point out anything that we might have missed covering that you want to make sure that people know about. Was there anything, any topics or any advice or just anything in general that we haven't covered that we should cover before we start wrapping up? I wouldn't mind uh, talking a little bit about dirty schedulers, my favorite topic. I'm good with that. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Talk dirty. <laughs> so if you go back to, I think it was 2011, Erlang Factory, I think it was the San Francisco one, Ricard Green of the OTP team gave a talk about native processes. And a native process is basically like, it's kind of like a native implemented function, a NIF, but it's a whole process unto itself. And he was talking about how they might go about adding this to the virtual machine. And part of the talk covered something called a dirty scheduler. And what the, the issue there was is when you're in native code, all bets are off in terms of what control the virtual machine has over that code. The native code can just run and run. It could be at a, you know, in, inside some C4 loop that's just looping away. The emulator beam can't get at it, can't really tell it to stop, can't say, hey, you've used all your reductions, so you need to take a break, right? It's just running on its own. And so the whole idea of the dirty scheduler was to kind of isolate these kinds of things off onto their own schedulers that wouldn't break the ordinary virtual machines schedulers, which have a lot of constraints around them as to how long jobs can run on them. And that's all done, again, for scalability and reliability. So we all saw that talk and it's kind of interesting, but nothing ever really happened about it. And then when I was at Basho, you know, we hit the infamous scheduler collapse problem where we were doing bad things in one of our database drivers sitting on these schedulers for sometimes minutes at a time doing database compactions and stuff and started seeing degradation of schedulers performance and even schedulers going offline thinking they had nothing to do when in fact just one of the schedulers was doing all the work in the system and this eventually led us back to the dirty scheduler idea and so working with the otp team basically said hey Steve will work on dirty schedulers. So I started working on that with Ricard Green of the OTP team. So Ricard's been very, very patient with me and helping me learn the uh, internals that I needed to know to be able to do this. But we are able to get it into Erlang 17 as an experimental feature. So it's been in 17, it was in 18, and it was still an experimental feature primarily because to become a full-fledged feature, you have to have people using it. You have to have people's eyeballs on it. And not a, a lot of people understand all the nuances of this part of the system. So just getting people to work on it is hard or, or use it. We've had some users and they've found some problems that we fixed. But for Erlang 19, we're really trying to get it to be a full-fledged feature. We want to remove that experimental label. The people who have used them have found them useful. Jesper Lewis Anderson wrote a nice blog post about if you run something on a dirty scheduler, there's virtually no overhead to get it over there, to run it there and bring it back. So it's got, like I said, the people who have used it have found that it works pretty well. So we're working on a few things right now, Ricardo and I, and hope to get that experimental label off of it for Erlang 19. So my challenge to everyone is go out there and learn something about NIFs and Try abusing the dirty schedulers feature, if you will. And if you run into problems, just send me email. It's easy to find my email address. Spammers do it all the time. That's my reign. So is there anything else we should cover before we wrap up? Do you have anything specifically, Francisco, that we forgot to talk about that you want to make mention to? No, I think we've done a pretty good job. I'd, what I would really like you know, to see the community do is, you know, there are a lot of complaints about the onboarding process in airline. And... You know, speaking to people, you know, spending time visiting companies, I think a lot of it, I think, boils down to environments and systems you're used to, which, you know, you, and, and you try, you know, moving over to Ireland, you try to look for 
environments which you know you're familiar with, and you know making uh, you know removing a lot of the accidental difficulties in and complexities of learning a language. So you focus not on the tooling but on the language itself. And if we look at a lot of the tooling we're using today, it's a tooling you know which was commonplace you know when you know many of us joined and started using Erlang. So one of the things is you know I, I just a shout out to everyone listening. Think, you know, in terms of, you know, go out. If you learn something, you go out and blog about it from your perspective, from your perspective of, you know, how do you make it easier for people with your mind share to understand, you know, what you've just learned. If you're going out and implementing, you know, don't complain about the tooling, you know, go out and actually solve the problem and implement tools which, you know, people which share your mind share and share your mindset are used to using and keep on sharing, you know, and keep on spreading the word. Because I think it's it's an incredibly powerful programming model, which everyone should learn to use and understand, it, no matter what language, programming language, you know, you, you end up writing your own systems in. Those sound great. And those both sound like call to actions, which I was going to ask you for. But is there another call to action or are those your call to actions respectively? That's mine. And that's mine. <laughs> That sounds good. So where can people find yep. each of you online if they're wanting to follow and keep up with you individually, aside from the progress of the book, which is, again, as I said, either about to be released or released by the time this goes live? So Twitter is the best place to get hold of me, uh, Francesco C on Twitter. Yeah, feel free to ping me there. I respond to everyone. And you can also same here. my email address as well. Right. Uh, Steve Vanosky, just all one word on Twitter and like I said earlier, my email is easy to find. So if you just search for Vanosky, you'll find it. I also wanted to share, if you are interested in designing for scalability, I'm sure you can find old versions of it on BitTorrent. But if you want the latest updated version, you can buy currently the digital copies. It's still early access. So we're in production right now doing changes, graphics designs. But you know, posts get updated frequently. You can buy it off the O'Reilly site. Just use the discount code AUTHD, A-U-T-H-D, which uh, will give you 50% off the digital copy. And I'll make sure to get that in the show notes as well, too, for anybody who wants that discount. Thanks. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Steve. And thank you, Francesco, for taking the time and joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you and gave me some extra insights into some of the deeper workings and at least your ways of thinking and approaching you're writing from the book that aren't necessarily inherent in reading it too. Thanks for having us. Thanks. <laughs> Have a great one. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.